the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You're lucky, Dean. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. My guest this hour is the author of a new book called Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love by E. Dolores Johnson. She joins me now by phone. Dolores, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Dolores, this is, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to just grab a, a phrase off the, uh, off the back of the uh, book jacket it says, uh, it's the true story of family secrets, separation, courage, and transformation through five generations of interracial relationships. Um, Dolores, what, is all that, what does all that mean? Well, that means that uh, my family uh, had mixed-race relationships for the last hundred years. And when we watch the journeys uh, through those generations, we see a reflection of America and its own attitudes towards race mixing, Um, starting way back when the country was first a colony. The first mixed-race people were slave-rape issue. And... Uh, As we came into uh, writing our founding documents, African Americans were identified as three-fifths of a person. And there were laws put into place in America as early as uh, 1600s that forbid any person of color from marrying a white person that was Native Americans or African Americans or Chinese or whomever. And then we had the Jim Crow era uh, through the uh, 1900s up till civil rights where people were getting lynched for being um, even in conversation with someone of the opposite sex, uh, let alone trying to get married. It was illegal in 28 states in America. Finally, in 1967, the Supreme Court heard the case of the Lovings, which was a couple with a white man and a black wife who um, took their 
conviction in in Virginia where they had been sentenced to prison or banishment from the state for 25 years. And all those laws were overturned when the Supreme Court reviewed that case. Up to today, where we now have um, census reports that show one in 10 marriages in America are mixed race. So that reflection of all that history is in my family relationships. The you mentioned the the loving case and the anniversary of that was just a uh, a few days ago, um, but with one in ten um, marriages in this country being mixed race marriages, how does it give you a, a different? Say, I'm not sure how to come at this. I, I'm curious about your perspective of of the racial. Um, protests that are going on about the, the, the killing of black men by police and so on in the country today, but, but also how, how this history, this, this family memoir uh, relates to you personally and, and how you feel about your status. Well, lots of questions in that one. Um... First of all, I'll say that the the Loving case had a very direct impact on my family because my father, who's black, my mother is white, met at work in Indianapolis in 1942. That was a town at that time which had a city council with many openly affiliated Klan members. There had been a lynching of two black men, partially because a white woman claimed that they raped her, and after they were dead, she recanted and said it hadn't happened. And Indiana's law, similar to Virginia's, um, required prison time for any kind of um, race mixing. And so my parents actually fled Indiana and went underground and stayed in secret for 36 years, which meant that in my own upbringing, I had no white family. I only had a black family. And that those relatives that my mom left behind by choice didn't know that I existed. It wasn't until um, 1967 when I was 19 that um, the loving decision went to the Supreme Court. And when I read the account in the New York Times, of that decision, the testimonies that people were giving against overturning the laws called people like me mongrels, abominations, and unnatural beings. So the loving law changed all of that so that today we do have one in ten mixed marriages. And part of the reason I wrote this book is to show that we have progressed through the time of slave rapes and all that history I just recounted to a day when we do have a look forward to something positive in this racial unrest in America. We have a projection from the Census Bureau that says by mid-century, 2050-ish, 20% of America will be mixed race. 
So there's an avenue forward for people to understand each other, to love each other, to build families. And yet, I agree with the protests in the street. You know, I am heartbroken at the record America has of racism. And the boiling point now that we have reached is an accumulation of all of the abuses, not only the microaggressions, but the people who call the cops on you for watching the birds or sleeping in the dorm couch at Yale, but for all kinds of murders, and not just black men, but we have Sandra Bland, we have the EMT in Kentucky who was shot in a no-knock police raid, the disregard for black rights um, in this country, is so deeply rooted in our systemic thinking that black people are not surprised that there are more shootings going on, but they are, are fed up. You mentioned uh, that your parents lived in secret together. They did. They, they. Uh, my mom staged her own disappearance. Her dad put her on the train, thinking that she was going on vacation to visit a classmate in Massachusetts and she disappeared into thin air. She met my father in Buffalo, and of course nobody knew that she and my father were even acquainted, and she never spoke of her white family. We were raised, my brothers and I, as black people, and that was part of society's thinking because we have the one-drop rule in America, which is a social construct that says that if you have one drop of black blood, you are a black person. And that, again, was part and parcel of the anti-miscegenation thinking that no other kind of blood can mix with white people. And so race as black people in the ghetto, going to a black university and so on, I only knew my black life. And my mom did not tell us anything about her family. My father didn't mention it. It was absolutely um, incredible to me now, as I look back on it, to think that half of my family was always missing and we didn't question it. But it's also interesting that, that, you know, although there was a, a white person in the house you thought of yourselves as a black family? Well, my birth certificate said Negro. That's the government categories. When you look at the census in those days, you had to check a box. And there's no permission in 1948 when I was born. There was no permission to call yourself half-white. That doesn't exist in, in the American lexicon at that time. You could have a white mother or father but you were still a black person because of the one-drop rule, the government categorizations, and so forth. I mean, that shows how institutional racism existed through um, official um, uh, official activities. But when you were growing up and and going to school and and around other black children, um, was it? I mean, were you aware of the fact that there was something unusual about the fact that that your mother was white and and uh, 
I mean, did did it seem unusual, or or were you outcast in any way because of it? Well, of course, we knew that we were unusual because our mother was white in that neighborhood, in that black neighborhood. But my mother was a respecter of all persons. She did. She called racism foolishness. She didn't see what made people uh, behave the way they did about race. And consequently, you know, she was a member of the community. She, you know, shared gardening secrets over the fence with the black neighbors, and um, she had black co-workers that she went to their birthday parties. And so there was a neighbor who dubbed my mother an honorary black person. <laughs> did it, And... and... Was that because she just fit in? She did fit in because she made no issue of race, and she didn't um, ever make any problems about race. She just wanted to have her family and her community and her friends, and uh, you know she was very unusual in that regard. She knew that racism existed, obviously, because the people in the street were the ones that made an issue of it. It wasn't an issue in our house either. (laughs) We knew we were mixed and that our mother was white and my father was black and that, you know, some people did react very negatively to that. We lived through a lot of um, social... um, (laughs) Social distancing is a word I, I come up with, but... We had um, we went to a, an amusement park that you had to take a ferry to go over to, and as we get on the ferry, the white woman is hustling her children roughly into a corner so they won't touch us. Uh, people coming out of a church, a black church next to us, would say very bad things as we walked down the street past them, roll their eyes and... Uh, you know, give us really dirty looks. And th- that that was a big, big, big part of our life growing up, that people on both sides were not at all accepting of what we, what we did. And to illustrate that point, in 1958, I was 10 years old. And that was the year that the Pew Research Center did a national poll where that it they discovered that 96% of Americans were against race mixing. And that was in 68? Uh, 58. Oh, 58, 58. So my parents had already been married 15 years, and I was 10 years old, and that was the climate that the country uh, was, uh, was uh, against race mixing, 96%. Dolores, I, I'm I'm fascinated by by your recollections of this. Uh, we're we're of a similar age and have lived through uh, a number of uh, uh, big events in this mm-hmm. country, and and I want to talk some more about that. But I have to take a break here. Can you stand by for just a few minutes, and and uh, we'll talk some more. Thank you. I will. All right. My guest is E. Dolores Johnson, author of a book called Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. We'll be back with more right after this. (laughs) 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. TomSumnerProgram.com 
the Tom Sumner Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of a book called Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. Her name is E. Dolores Johnson. She joins me by phone. Dolores, welcome back. Thanks so much, Tom. Um, Dolores, we were talking just before the break um, about uh, uh, sort of being of mixed race and, and how people from both races would would treat you and, and your siblings. I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption there that there were siblings. Yes, I had two older brothers. One was a black militant, and one we thought was passing for white. He lived on the other side of town in the, in the white neighborhood with his white wife. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine um, being in that situation where you don't really fit in either world, but it sounds like you were able to have some normalcy, at, at least in your immediate neighborhood. I think that uh, for us, um, it was a normal part of life to have people react to us like that. We, it's sort of like how black people are saying now, you know, we're sick and tired of um, how we're treated in this country. And, but they know that it's been going on every day, all the time, everywhere in America. And that was the case with being mixed race in the 40s and 50s. However, um, my mom had been raised Catholic, and she continued her Catholicism all her life. And she wanted my oldest brother, her firstborn, to go to Catholic school as she had. My father was Protestant, and he was going to send the other two of us to public school. Well, when my mother took my oldest brother to first grade, she found another white woman there with a brown child and struck up a conversation and that woman informed her of a circle of people in Buffalo, where we lived, that were all mixed race. And uh, that group became our found family. And within that cocoon, I was raised with maybe uh, up to 15 mixed race kids that we called cousins. And... Uh, it was a place where my mom found her first friends because when she first married my dad, a lot of people backed away from her and didn't want to uh, be involved. I found out later that their feeling was, here was a runaway white woman living in the ghetto and the law was going to show up any time and they didn't want to be mixed up in that. So they avoided my mom. But when she met this woman at um, the Catholic school, life became a whole other thing for her and for us because we had, we did have friends that were black and my father's black family, uh, a number of them lived in Buffalo, although all of them were not equally warm to us. Um, but that group, which came to call themselves the Click Club, was where we socialized and spent holidays and, um, you know, went to each other's birthday parties and so on. So we had a normal community in our own minds. When you talk about black people rejecting your mother, 
um, out, of, out of fear of some reprisal of being associated with something which was criminal in most states. Right. Um, there's, there's a certain sort of understanding why they might feel that way. Did the law ever become an issue for your mother and father? It never did because, <laughs> as my mother said to me, way later in life when we finally broke, in, broke the secret, I ran away from my family and I didn't mean for them to ever find me, and they never did. So what happened was uh, when her father put her on the train to go for this uh, fake vacation um, and disappeared, he called the police and in Indianapolis, they searched everywhere and interviewed any possible persons who might have known what happened, found nothing. And then what she had done was take the train into New York City, where originally she was supposed to meet my dad. But he had gone to New York ahead of her and couldn't um, find the work that was suitable for him, so he moved up to Buffalo, where his parents um where his mom lived. And, of course, there was no letters or phone calls between them um, after they made the plan and he left. And so she called his mother and she said, he's here in Buffalo, you're going to have to take a train and come up here. So my mother was spent the night um, at a hotel in Manhattan and she took one of the postcards in the hotel desk and wrote to her family and said she was having a fine vacation, and she loved them very much. Well, after she became a missing person, and she had traveled from Indiana to New York, it became a matter of FBI interest because it was through three or four states right. that she had traveled. So there was an FBI search for my mom. The New York City police detectives got involved, and... After all this searching, my grandfather had gone to New York to try to help find her. He thought she was there. And the police kind of scolded him and said, well, you know, we have a lot of girls who come to New York unaccompanied and go missing every year, sort of saying to him, you know, why did you let her come by herself? But we can't find a body, and we can't find any evidence of her trail. So we are closing the case and labeling it a victim of foul play, which means she was either murdered or sold into white slavery. And that is what her family lived with for the 36 years that she stayed missing. Did, did they ever reconnect? Yes. When I um, was in my 30s, you know, a black woman in my 30s, I saw this movie Roots, which was the tracing of an African-American's family all the way back through his generations to Africa. And it became a craze in America for people to search their family history. And I decided to search my dad's history. So I interviewed some of the black relatives in Buffalo, and then I went down to Alabama to meet this old Aunt Willie I'd heard of. She was my great aunt, but I'd never met her before. And she started filling me in on history that 
other relatives hadn't told me. And I created a genealogy chart from all of those conversations, and it was five or six generations back, including the African who came to America and started my dad's line here. And when I had that chart typed up on this huge piece of paper, I stood back and looked at it, and for the first time in my life, the light bulb went off that there was only one white person on my family tree. My white mother was my white family all by herself, and I realized that could not be true. So I went home and talked to my family. I said I was coming for a weekend visit, and I wanted everybody together, but I didn't tell them I had an agenda. And when I said to them, listen, you know this, the genealogy chart that I gave each of you a copy of, there's something huge missing. And they all looked at me with this total incomprehension. What? What's missing? I said, Mama's family is missing. Our entire white family is missing. And I can't live with that anymore. It makes me unsure of who I am. I want to know whose blood runs in my vein. I want to know the story. And it was a very traumatic weekend of a lot of tears and questions where at that moment when I said that, my parents went upstairs and told us to wait downstairs. My brothers and I waited while they were up there forever. I could hear my mother crying, and they were discussing and discussing and discussing, and finally they came back downstairs, and my mother said, okay, now you're all adults. We're going to tell you what happened. We ran away, and we have been in hiding all this time. Nobody knows that your father... None of my family knows that your father and I are married or that any of you exist. And that's the way I wanted it. So um, you can just imagine all of the emotions that poured out of all of us that weekend as we began to probe into the story. And sure. I said to my mom at the end, I need to see who these people are. I want to go... I hadn't even known they were in Indianapolis. That was not a place that was ever talked about in our house. I want to go to Indianapolis and see if I can find them. And my mother was very, 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 very upset. She said, I cannot face them after what I did, leaving them to think all these horrible things for 36 years. I've hurt them, and I'm, I'm too guilt-ridden to ever face them. So if you want to do this, you have to do it for your own purposes, I sort of understand that, but you must leave me out of it. So I asked her, well, if I find them, what am I supposed to say about you? And her reply was, say I'm dead. And that's the title of the book. How did, I can how, go on. How did, your, how did your mother and father meet? They met at work. So in 1942, she was in the mailroom, and he was sort of the handyman at this electrical company. Uh And he was sent down to the mailroom to build some shelves for her to put the boxes and packages and so forth on. And, you know, she thought he was a very well-spoken, intelligent, 
um, well-groomed, handsome man. And he was amazed that she made conversation with him, as he said, like he was a straight-up man. Because in a town where the Klan is running the city government and they're lynching black people, you don't imagine that a white woman is going to make small talk conversation with a black man. You're not going to expect that she treats him with the respect she does all the other co-workers. I, and, I have to, and I have to wonder um, why your dad let it continue when, you know, the, the likely outcome was kind of horrible. Right. Well, my dad... Um, explained to my mother once they that they actually spent some time alone together that this was an extremely dangerous thing and she didn't understand much of that because she didn't know anything about negro life there had been no negroes in her family home uh, for any occasions or at her church or any of the social circles that she moved in and when he told her that she could go to prison for being with him, she was, you know, completely unaware of, he said to her, you have no idea what you're getting into here. But, you know, when we confronted this question at my parents' home so many years later about the secret, my dad said she was the sweetest woman he had ever met. And she treated him like a real man and the attraction was very strong it that it had it, to be a, an extremely powerful love to make was. her do what she did to her family it really was it really was and um when he explained to her about lynchings and uh prison and all of that he said to her look if you want to go forward in this relationship, we have to leave here. We cannot be in Indiana. And that means we're going to have to leave from here. Nobody can know that we're together. Nobody can know that you know me. And we're going to have to go to another state where none of these people here will ever find us. And this is what I'm telling you. I love you, I want to marry you and make a life with you, but these are the only ways that we can be safe. And if you need to go and think about this very, very seriously, and let's don't see each other or talk anymore until you make up your mind whether this is something that you want to do. And she finally approached him again and said, yes, I love you, I want to have a family with you, and let's go. That's that is um, so extraordinary. Yeah, when, they they really you know I I like to say that if the loving case, the the loving couple was the so-called parents of mixed race in, in this country. My mother and father were the grandparents because they did it. They chose love over the law and love over race 25 years before the loving. And in your mother's case, love over family. 
Yes. See, the thing was, my mother was a divorced Catholic. She had been married to a philanderer who didn't work, and she divorced him in the 30s. And so nobody was going to marry her in her community. It was not acceptable to be a divorced Catholic. And for her to get married a second time meant that she'd be excommunicated from the church. And those were her choices. She she found this man that she loved and who loved her. She could run away with him or she could stay in Indianapolis and become a spinster who was already um, something of an outcast. When when you were, after you had talked to your family and said, I, I, I want to know the rest of my family, I want to find out who these people are, um, did you then, in fact, make contact with her family? I began to search for them, yes. I. This is before Ancestry.com or the Internet or anything. <laughs> no, you were, you were going through your Alex Haley phase. I was going through my Alex, exactly. <laughs> and so it was all shoe leather and, uh, and uh, paperwork. So... I actually took a course at a community college one, you know, in the evening, which taught you how to, you know, trace your roots. I mean, this Alex Haley thing was really on fire in all, throughout America. So they were teaching people what kind of documents and people and, you know, resources were available to you to try to put together your picture of your family. And armed with that, I went to Indianapolis. So I, um, first of all, um, went through some city directories and realized that my grandparents had disappeared from the public record in the um, 1947-48 time frame. So I went to across town to the vital records office and asked for death certificates. They had one for my grandfather, not one for my grandmother. Of course, back in the 40s, record-keeping wasn't what it is today, and the clerk told me, well... She probably did die if she's not in the city directory, but uh, we don't have a record here, and that's, you know, that's often the case. But my mom had said to me, when you go out to Indianapolis, I want you to study Dad's face. When you come back, tell me everything about him, how he is and how he looks. And he had been dead 30 years when I got to Indianapolis, and she didn't know, know that. Wow. Well... With the grandparents gone, the only other person I knew was my mom's half-sister, Dorothy. And so I began looking for Dorothy. And um, the first thing I think of is marriage. You know, she she would have gotten married. So I now go to another uh, city um, records office where they sit me down <laughs> at this desk in the basement with these big the card ledger books. files and ledger books and <laughs> oh man and i read all the marriage licenses for 10 years after my mother left and her sister is not listed so i think okay well maybe she never got married so now i call everybody in the hotel the hotel gives me all the phone books that they have and i call everybody <laughs> in the phone book <laughs> And none of them are my aunt. I go out to the neighborhood where their house was, and the house is not at 
but it it's torn down and there's a highway an interstate towards the end of the what would have been their block so i walk around the neighborhood and you know I, i don't see anybody i go to the church where they worshiped which was such a central part of her upbringing it's locked it's a midweek day and i go to the rectory nobody answers the door now i'm all i have is this one death certificate of my grandfather and it's time to go home i have to go back to work i've taken a week's vacation to do this so i go to the you know i i spend the night crying because i had such a desire for this and it was such a a mission for me and i had nothing So I got up in the morning and I went to the airport early, which is my habit to be early to everything. And I thought, and so oh. I've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That was a little bit of an inside joke, but <laughs> yes, you do know that about me. So um, I have some time to kill. When I get to my gate, I go over to the payphone. So, so again, you know, this is this is way back and. You have phone booths, and I call, go in the booth, and I call the church again, who has never answered my inquiries, and I get the priest, and he says, oh, you, we, we got your messages, and we found your aunt. She married in the church here. She married a GI during World War II from California. I'm thinking, California? Like, <laughs> do I have to now figure out how to find her in California? And he gave me the man's name. So we had printed directories hanging on big metal chains and phone booths in those days. So I pick up the phone booth and I search in there for that name and I find it. And I call the number a lady answers the phone. And I say to her, uh, you don't know me, but I think we might be related and I want to ask you some questions and see if you're the person I'm looking for. And she was reluctant, but she said yes. Later she told me, She thought I was selling something. <laughs> <laughs> so I start down this list of questions. Your father's name was Henry Lewis. Yes. He was an electrician. Yes. You lived at 635 Woodlawn Avenue. Yes. You went to this church. Yes. You had a sister that disappeared in the early 1940s, and she sucks in her breath. I mean, you, it was palpable how shocked she was. She said, yes. I said, her name was Myrna Elizabeth. She said, no, that was not my sister's name. And I'm thinking, what, what's happening here? Like, this has to be the person because all the details check. So I just go back through the same list of questions because I can't think what else to do. And then I said, well, her nickname was Ella. She said, Ella, yes, that's my sister. Ella, yes. You know how you have people in your family You call Junior. And yeah, and that's their name, like. and you just never recognize their real name. And she didn't know, she didn't recognize her sister's real name. Oh, that's funny. Um, Dolores, I have to take another break here. Can you stick around? This is such a fascinating story. Yes, Tom, with pleasure. All right, we'll be back with more of our conversation with E. Dolores Johnson right after this short break. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. 
stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing, or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a book called Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. Her name is E. Dolores Johnson, and she's with me by phone. Dolores, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Um, Just before the break, I wanted to pick up where we left off, because you were talking about uh, your, your mother never reconnected with her side of the family, your mother who was white, your father was black. She ran away. Um, at a very young age, and um, uh, married your father, and and basically hid from her family, um, and and then you got curious and were um, exploring that side of your family tree. Found out that uh, her parents, your grandparents, had both passed, but you had reached out and found her sister, and and you were. Just at the point you were talking about that conversation where where you called her, was she in California at that time? Actually, no. She was right there in Indianapolis where I was. Her her husband had been stationed somewhere in California during the war, or maybe he was on his way there to be shipped out. I don't know. But um, he was from Indianapolis as well. So California was really not any, any location where they had lived. So um, she was right there in Indianapolis when I called her from the Indianapolis airport. But you were just getting to the point where you were about to tell her who you were. Yes. After she and I talked about the fact that her sister's name was Ella, I was talking about the same relative she was talking about. She said to me, well, who are you? And I said, I'm Ella's daughter. And again, you know, she was breathless. She said, we thought she was dead. You're Ella's daughter? And I explained to her that I had been looking for her. I wanted to reconnect to know my mother's family. And I was at the airport having spent a week of fruitless searching. And she said, well, you stay right there. And she hung up. (laughs) She didn't say, what gate are you at? What are you wearing? What do you look like? Nothing. And at that very time, you talk about something strange, the airline posted a two-hour delay on the flight. Wow. So now I'm standing there, and I'm watching. This is before TSA, so everybody could go to the gate, and lots of people out there, lots of commotion. And I see this woman way down the concourse, and she's staggering towards me with her eyes just glued on me. And when she gets close, she walks right up to my face and she says, it's you, isn't it? I see my sister in your face. I had such chills at that moment. I would imagine. It was was unbelievable. Her husband had come with her. 
And um, once she recognized my looks, you know, she accepted the story, but we had time then, so we decided to go in the coffee shop and sit down and talk. And we all got these nice big steaming mugs of coffee, (laughs) and we didn't know what to say to each other. So we're all stirring these cups, looking in the cups, you know, and finally she looks up at me and she says, well, why would my mother have left us like that and never said a word? in all of these years. And I just told her straight, I said she married a Negro, and she felt that it was not acceptable to most people, and she didn't want the law to come after her husband and hurt him, and she didn't want you guys in her family, whom she loved very much, to suffer because of her decision. She thought that Her father, who was a word-of-mouth electrician, was not going to be able to get referrals if people knew that this scandal had taken place. And her stepmom was very sick with consumption. He could barely afford the medicine for her. She thought, my mother also thought that her sister probably wouldn't be able to get a decent husband because the whole family would be tainted by what she had done. And so it was her choice not to tell them where she was. And so now we're all stirring the coffee again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows what to say to that either. And finally, uh, Dorothy looks up and she says, you know, she was probably right. She said, mother would have turned over in her grave to ever know this. So I had a picture of the my family that I carried in my wallet, so I showed that. We didn't have cell phone pictures then. Right. (laughs) And so I took it out from under the plastic sheath, and there was my parents and myself and my two brothers, and she studied it. She said, that's my sister. She pointed it out to her husband. She said, that is Ella right there. And she said, look how beautiful she looks there with her own family. And she shook her head. She said, all of these years that we have missed And Ella was living and had a family, and we didn't even know it. And, you know, it was so touching because my brother, who was a black militant, had said to me, you are crazy to go looking for these white people because the (laughs) last thing they want to know is there's a relative on the porch who's Negro. They're going to shut the door in your face. And I had been braced for that, actually, that because they came from this place that was so racist that my mother had to run away, that maybe they were racist too. Maybe they were going to you know, abuse me when I showed up. So her reaction was so different from what I had expected. Did the sisters ever get a chance to speak? I went home and I told my mom I found her sister and met her. And she cried for three months to know that her dad was dead and all the things that I had learned from her sister. And I said to her, you know, she gave me her contact information, and she made that comment about having missed you for 35 years that you could have had together. I think the door is open for you to get back together. But my mother was really stuck on this feeling of guilt and not being able to face them. She kept saying they're going to hate me, they're going to hate me. So I proposed to her a three-way phone call where she and my dad would be on extensions at home. 
I would call from my um, place in New Jersey. I would call her first, and she was to keep quiet, no radio, no wrinkling papers for conversation. And I would call Dorothy, Pat, and I would say to her that my mother was not dead. She was afraid to face her. And my mother could judge for herself what the reaction was and whether or not she wanted to try to get back together. So we, we placed the call, and I say to Dorothy, I lied to you when I met you, and I'm very sorry about that. And she said, you lied to me? What, what do you mean? I said, your sister is not dead. She's afraid to face you. And Dorothy is very effusive. She says, my daughter, my sister is alive. I, I, I want to see my, my sister. I want to talk to her. I love my sister. Oh, my God, my sister, a chance to see my sister. At which time my mother bursts into sobs, and she's having practically a breakdown on the phone. And I said, well, that's your sister. She's on the phone. I didn't want to tell you that because she wanted to hear your reaction. But that is your sister. She's on the phone live with you now crying, at which time Dorothy starts to sob. (laughs) And then I was at work, and I had the door closed, and I start to sob. I'm feeling this 36-year pain pouring out of my elders. And... We're all uncontrollably crying. Now, the last thing that a woman wants to do is cry at work in front of male colleagues, you know, so I was just praying that nobody was listening outside in the hall and all that. But finally, Dorothy said to my mother, I love you, Ella. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I want to see you. You know, and my mom, you know, through this very broken, tearful response, says, I love you, too. And finally... It was arranged that they would meet. Well, we're going to have, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Dolores, I can't believe how fast this hour has gone. It has been an absolute delight talking with you. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. I'm sure is available where all fine books are sold. Uh, But do you have a website, Dolores? Yes, I do. It's www.edolores, with an O-D-O-L, edolorisjohnson.com. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Fascinating conversation with E. Dolores Johnson there and uh, the other conversations as well. Tomorrow on the show, it's Wednesday, which means armchair politics. Community activist Arthur Woodson joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. So be sure and tune in for that in the second and third hour. In the first hour, we're going to talk with uh, Tom Madden, uh, media executive going to be an interesting conversation for sure good night everybody the tom sumner program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the flint area Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. 
This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.